0: My guest today is the United States Senator from my home state of Connecticut, Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy serves on the Foreign Relations Committee, and in April this year, he introduced legislation to restrict arms sales to Saudi Arabia over that country's prosecution of the war in Yemen. The Saudi-led air campaign is both causing inordinate civilian casualties and not doing much to counter the active ISIS or al-Qaeda branches in the country. Senator Murphy discusses how this legislation hopes to rein in Saudi Arabia's military campaign, which in the view of Senator Murphy is becoming increasingly inimical to American interests. Our discussion of Yemen leads to an extended conversation about the U.S.-Saudi alliance, the terms of which Murphy is very transparently trying to change from his perch in the Senate. Now, we recorded this conversation before the U.S. Senate voted unanimously on May 17th to enable family members of 9-11 victims to possibly sue the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for any potential liability they may hold, a move which was opposed by the White House. But I do think this conversation helps set the context for that vote. Senator Murphy is a Democrat on the progressive end of the spectrum. He's launched a website, ChanceForPeace.org, in which he's attempting to fundamentally shift the terms of the national security conversation in D.C. The Saudi arms legislation, it seems, is one manifestation of his foreign policy vision. Foreign policy watchers will be interested in hearing Senator Murphy's critique of U.S. Middle East policy. And for international relations students out there, this conversation offers a fascinating insight into how an individual legislator can influence U.S. foreign policy. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Go to GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com to check out our robust archive of interviews with foreign policy movers and shakers. You can subscribe on iTunes. We have an app for your iPhone or Android, and you can get in touch with me via the contact button. Now, here is my conversation with Senator Chris Murphy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, first and foremost, we need to be talking about what's happening in Yemen in the United States Congress. I think this has largely been a silent war. There's very little recognition of the high level of U.S. participation. Uh, Clearly, we've been um, funding and supplying the Saudi-led coalition. We've been providing intelligence and refueling. And as we've learned in the last few days, we now have U.S. ground troops um, fighting uh, al-Qaeda in parts of that country. Um, I I think there's not much of an argument that this civil war inside Yemen, this proxy war between the Iranians and the Saudis, has accrued to the benefit of U.S. national security. And I'd like to see us start to ask some questions, at the very least, in Congress about why we are so deeply involved in a war that, with the exception of the presence of al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, doesn't seem to be vital to our national security interests. More broadly, I do want to start asking some other questions about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, We have very quietly, dramatically expanded arms sales to the Saudis and into the Middle East in general. Um, And I think we should start expecting something more from this partnership than we've gotten in the past. I didn't uh, sign on as part of the Iran nuclear agreement uh, to a new military treaty with the Saudis to back each and every one of their military plays in the Middle East. And yet, I fear that that is sort of becoming how we have rewritten the the Iran nuclear agreement. That's not what a lot of us signed up for. And, you know, my legislation, which is designed to put some conditions up on the latest sale of air to ground munitions to the Saudis, I admit is, you know, what I hope to be you know, first step in a bigger conversation about resetting U.S.-Saudi
0: relationships. So a few things to unpack there. First, um, just going through like the the details of what your legislation speaks to specifically, it is to restrict arms sales to the Saudi government uh, unless they fulfill certain conditions uh, in terms of their conduct of the war in Yemen. Is that right?
1: So I don't think our conditions are anything different than what the administration is asking for. You're right. The legislation is not a prohibition of military sales to Saudi Arabia. It says that the Saudis have to effectively do three things and that they have to do this to the satisfaction of the administration. They've got to um, commit to um, to to not deliberately attack civilians and to minimize the deaths of the civilians uh, in their bombing campaign. B, they've got to allow humanitarian aid to flow into Yemen. We know there's been plenty of reports that they have uh, very intentionally blocked humanitarian aid from reaching parts of uh, Houthi-controlled Yemen. And third, they've got to be participants in the fight against extremist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. They can't only be fighting the Houthis with American weapons. Um, and so if those three conditions are Satisfied uh, with certification by the administration, the arms sale can go forward. And, and frankly, I think that's what the administration wants. Uh, and so I'm b- hoping that Congress is going to provide you know, a little bit of cover, a little bit of um, impetus behind some of the things that the Obama folks have been demanding.
0: Um, so you alluded also earlier to the broader context uh, in which U.S. arms sales to Gulf countries in the Middle East has been accelerating uh, in the wake of, of the Iran nuclear deal and I suppose the idea is that these arms sales to Gulf countries to Saudi Arabia uh, were intended to sort of placate uh, the the Saudis uh, in you know in in the wake of what some might be considered sort of a warming relation between Iran and the United States
1: yeah I I think that's certainly how it's being read by some, and and I am a big believer in Obama's policy of military restraint in the Middle East. I think he's been very smart over and over again to to withstand calls to have the United States drag back into military conflicts in the Middle East. But it's not really a substitute for U.S. military involvement to uh, simply arm our allies in the region, because the end result is not the same, um, but it starts to look familiar as as these proxy wars between the Iranians and the Saudis create more milit- more sort of ungovernable space. It allows for groups like Al Qaeda to grow. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I don't think that as an answer to the um, Iranian nuclear agreement that we should simply be arming up the Saudis. The result of that uh, ultimately has been for more fertile ground for the very extremist groups that we claim to be our top priority in the Middle East. That's not a great result.
0: So in what other ways might the U.S. reassure Saudi allies that the fundamentals of, of the U.S. You know Saudi strategic alliance, which is going for like 70 years, um, remains unchanged in the wake of the Iran deal?
1: Well, listen, I, I, I don't think it's a smart idea for our relationships to be set in stone. So I'm actually not seeking for our relationship with Saudi Arabia to go unchanged. I'm actually seeking to change it. And my and my hesitation about doubling down on the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is not just connected to the uh, proxy war in Yemen. To me. It's about an examination of the root causes of extremism. And I think we have largely let the Saudis and some of their GCC allies off the hook for the way in which they have allowed for dollars to flow through certain clerical organizations and nonprofits into the hands of extremist groups and into the hands of those who would preach a version of Islam that's very intolerant and often forms the building blocks of these extremist groups. So, no, I'm... I, I'm arguing to reset this relationship and demand that the Saudis do certain things in order to continue to receive military assistance, preferential treatment from the United States. And uh, again, if I really wanted to, you know, radically change the relationship, radically change it, I would be proposing to to block this arms sales. I'm not. I'm just proposing to put some conditions on it, conditions that. You know, I hope the Saudis would be able to meet
0: this alliance. Uh, this this relationship has has been, you know, sort of like a fundamental part of the U.S. strategic relationship with the Middle East for for many many decades. I have to imagine that you're running into profound levels of resistance, right, to to your proposal, to your uh, overall goal, which you just articulated, to fundamentally or to shift and in, incrementally at least uh, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. What sort of like, like obstacles are, are are you running into?
1: you know, I think
0: it's I think it's hard
1: to almost describe um, uh, the level of opposition you get to a proposal like this. What I'm doing is clearly countercultural. Uh, and when you get sworn into the United States Senate, you almost just sort of are forced to accept that part of the U.S. policy DNA involves this historic, unquestioned alliance with the Saudis. And I know we've gotten a lot of good things out of that relationship. We got a lot of oil. Um, We powered our country in part through the energy relationship. The uh, Saudis and the United States have, have, have worked. Very well on counterterrorism uh, operations uh, over time, and you know the Saudis have also played this very constructive role in uh, achieving some form of détente between Sunni nations in the Middle East and, and Israel. So, give them credit for the positive parts of the relationship. But you know, I think when you re- really step back and do a you know sum total of the pluses and minuses of the relationship there's more balance there than a lot of the foreign policy establishment in the United States would like new members of Congress to believe. So there's no doubt that quietly I'm getting a lot of senators saying, you know, really interested in your resolution. You know, I think you're bringing up some really important points. But I won't deny that there's not a rush of members of Congress joining us as named co-sponsors. This is going to be a long transition to a different conversation about uh, U.S.-Saudi relations.
0: Well, I'm so curious that how you sort of manage to to accelerate or usher that transition? I mean, what you described, and I think you you put it well, was that this is like a cultural foundation, right? It's not just a it it is like a part of of the U.S. establishment is this relationship, and and like how do you start to change the culture then of U.S. foreign policy? You know, sitting you know from one Senate seat in in the uh, in the the Foreign Relations Committee or beyond.
1: Well, I think the culture is changing, and I think it's changing in part because, you know, we continue to run into very clear evidence of the limits of military power. In trying to control and combat extremism. Um, and we've seen that through the growth of ISIS. And so you have a lot of members of Congress today who are sort of stepping back and saying, well, wait a second. You know, c- clearly the, the way to attack extremism is not to wait until they've grown into a force like ISIS did and, and then come after them. You've got to figure out the roots. So more of a conversation about the roots of extremism than ever before. And listen, there's just no question that a lot of members of Congress are coming to the conclusion that if you tell the story of the roots of Sunni extremism, a lot of that story runs through the Wahhabi movement. So I think you have more willing ears than ever before. And I would argue that the Saudis know that, which is why you know, in the face of some criticism from the Obama administration, myself and others, you know, there has been some behavior changes. Um, you know, they have come to the table after much resistance to try to engage in a peace process over Yemen. You have seen the the beginnings of campaigns in Yemen against AQAP, not just against the Houthis. So I think there's, there's, there's some fertile ground for this conversation to happen. I think the Saudis know that. Um, and I think you're seeing you know,
0: some responses. How has uh, the Saudi response to your proposal manifested itself in, in DC itself? I mean, you know, they, they hire lobbyists, they, they uh, support some think tanks. I mean, and, and, you know, obviously there is like a, a a sort of history and inertia to the U S relationship with Saudi Arabia. Like, have there been specific instances where just the magnitude of that, um, that inertia has, has startled you or surprised you in any way? Well,
1: I, I, I'm, I'm not a history of 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 the nature of the relationship with Washington, but my sense is that it's built on some sort of very deep, long partnerships between a handful of members of the Saudi family and a handful of high-level U.S. diplomats, presidents, et cetera. And, and so I wouldn't suggest that there is this ongoing, you know, Deep, tight relationship between the Saudis or their lobbyists and the United States Congress, Um, and not that they've given up on me. I mean, we certainly do get requests for Saudi officials to come in and meet with me, but I think that they are much more focused on trying to stop our legislation from moving through the. Foreign Relations Committee at large than coming in and trying to convince me that I'm that I'm wrong. But again, I, I, it's not as if there are Saudi paid for lobbyists prowling the halls of Congress trying to stop this legislation. I think they've been able to rely on contacts with the administration um, uh, more than anything else as a way to protect you know, their interests inside the United States.
0: Um, are there historical precedents that you might draw on um, to like, inform how one goes about sort of starting to change the nature of, a, of an alliance?
1: Well, there's certainly precedent with respect to Saudi Arabia. I mean, we, we sort of accept the U.S.-Saudi relationship, as you said, as a bedrock part of uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. But, of course, some of the most high-profile Fights that the Congress had with the executive over foreign policy were with respect to military sales to Saudi Arabia. It was the AWACS sales that Vice President Biden and Secretary of State Kerry <laughs> led the charge against in the 1980s, um, uh, you know, over at the time Saudi hostility towards Israel, but some of their other behavior in the region as well. So we do have, and, and there's evidence that not only did the context of the arms sales change at the time, but the Saudis' disposition. Uh, vis-a-vis Israel changed, uh, began to change around that time. So you can look back to the 80s, now that's a long time ago, as an example of when the United States Senate put pressure on an arms sale to, to Saudi Arabia that helped change their trajectory. Um, and some of their priorities in the region, so there's certainly uh, there 's certainly precedent there
0: uh, I guess it, it seems that you know one of the kind of hist- like the underpinnings of of the Saudi politics is you know the alliance between the royalty and 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 the, the, the Wahhabi clerics and, and fundamental to that is the you know exporting of Wahhabism around the world uh, I guess I, one would wonder if if threatening to you know restrict arms sales uh, to Saudi Arabia is sort of sufficient to um sort of get the, the clerical regime to you know to 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 rein in the the spread of wahhabism or however what you might put it
1: I think that's, I think there's an easy answer to that and that it's not, right? I mean, I, I, am I'm, I'm not envisioning that, you know, a, a bipartisan resolution, uh, threatening to cut off arms sales is going to be what separates the, uh, Saud family from the Wahhabis. I mean, that's a, you know, uh, almost a century old, centuries old relationship. It goes back a long time. And so, I'm just simply asking, you know, my colleagues, given the fact that that is likely not going to change, Is that a regime that we want to be more deeply in bed with than we are today Um, if they are not willing to stop the flow of Saudi money into the Wahhabi movement? And by the way, we received testimony in open session in the Foreign Relations Committee about two weeks ago that the recruiting materials for some elements of ISIS are word for word from textbooks that are put out into the marketplace by the Wahhabis. So anyway, my point is maybe we're not going to be able to change them, but if they're not going to change – Shouldn't that force us into a conversation about whether we should be so deeply militarily allied with Saudi
0: Arabia? To conclude, in what ways do you think the sort of an election season here in the U.S. is is an appropriate or a possible inflection point in which to start to change the conversation uh, about Saudi Arabia? I mean, do you have any expectations that the election might move the needle uh, in a direction you see more beneficial in any way?
1: Well, you know I can speak on behalf of my constituents. I mean people in Connecticut are war weary um but they know that the Middle East continues to be a volatile, volatile place, and so you know they're looking for answers um you know they want for the next president to have a policy that's going to result in less extremism in that region, not more, and pretty much everything we've tried so far hasn't worked so i I think people want new ideas um i, I don 't want to give Donald Trump any credit here, but you know let me just say that you know some of the things he says about the you know the, the foreign policy establishment not necessarily being as valuable as they may think they are um you know actually has some purchase out there amongst the American public because you know they don 't see you know a lot of um a lot of results from the traditional way of thinking about the Middle East. So I think there's room here. Uh, I I can't tell you that Hillary Clinton is going to take it. Um, uh, Donald Trump may. um, And to the extent that that all jumbles up this uh, in anticipation of the next Congress, maybe it'll allow us to have a little bit more of an open conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Thank you so much to Senator Murphy. Thank you out there for listening to the podcast. As always, you can get in touch with me via GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And if this is the first time you're tuning into the podcast, welcome. This is a podcast designed for foreign policy nerds, international affairs junkies, and people who just want a deeper and more contextualized understanding of global affairs, typically the kind of softer side of international relations, human rights, international development, climate change, the United Nations, but we occasionally do dive into hard geopolitics as well. I love it all.